0: Please take your Bibles now and flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. That's the first passage we're going to come to this morning. We'll be there in just a moment, but if you'll take your Bible and flip to the right, just a few pages from Romans 10, we'll be in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We're continuing in our series looking at what the Bible has to say about the church today. Today. Particularly at this juncture, we're looking at the ministries of priority within a church. Now the church, in a large sense, in the modern day today, gives herself to many things. Some things foolishly, some things out of necessity, some things with good intentions, good motives, but no matter what the church gives herself to or how big she is in any particular local setting, there are some things which are to be a priority to her. Not just things that are practiced, but things that are to hold a place of prominence in her midst. And a few weeks ago, we highlighted the first of those is the preaching or heralding or proclamation of God's word. Where we declare the gospel and we declare the truth of of God's scriptures. What the world, how how the world is explained around us. Last week, we looked at the second priority for a church and that's prayer. God's people... Are to be people marked out by spending time with him in prayer. And not just a casual sentence here or there, or a minute or two here and there, but lingering with God in prayer, devoting ourselves to God in prayer. And today we come to look at another ministry of priority, and that ministry is what we're going to call church community. Church community. We've talked about this before already in this series, so some of these things will be a little repetitive, but that's okay. Philippians chapter 3 verse 1, Paul says it's okay to repeat the same thing to you because it's no trouble for me and it's safe for you. So I'm taking that up. It's okay for me to repeat some things to you. It's no trouble to me at all, I guarantee you, and it's safe for you. So some of these things might be a little repetitive, but that is okay. One of the things that is repetitive that we've already looked at in this series is that it has always been God's plan from the beginning to gather his people together, both in relation to himself and in relation to each other. And that has been the plan since the beginning with Adam and extending even to Abraham and then marking them out officially as a nation to today as the church. And it will be the culminating, the culmination of God's plan in Heaven, Revelation chapter 7, tells us what? People from all over the world, right? Every tribe, nation, language, tongue, everybody that's saved by the grace of Christ will be gathered together around the throne of God worshiping Him. And they'll be worshiping Him in relation to Him and in relation to each other. It is God's desire and God's plan, good and perfect plan, to gather His people together both in relation to himself and in relation to each other. But it seems to me today that the church has largely misunderstood that calling. In fact, I would say any of the three priorities that we've looked at thus far, preaching, prayer, or, or, or community, fellowship, is almost, in a biblical sense, non-existent in the modern church. We witness, tragically, in more churches than not, the demise of preaching. It doesn't take long to discover that preaching is being replaced with all sorts of strange things. And we know convict by conviction, personally, that none of us pray like we ought. We look at the prayers of the Apostle Paul, or, or the Apostle Peter, or even our Lord Himself, and we say, those are wonderful prayers... But they're not my prayers. I don't pray like that. It didn't take a lot of time to be convicted that we need to pray more. And certainly, I think, in most contexts, perhaps even in every context in some form or fashion, the fellowship of the saints is ignored, misunderstood, or under malpractice. Now, before we go any further, I hope to explain why I think the the practice of church fellowship is suffering today. But before we do, I need to define my terms a little bit. I'm using the term community over the term fellowship for a reason. The term fellowship, you ought to know, is a much more accurate historical and biblical term. But to today's listeners, it conjures up very little meaning other than the occasional get-together, right? Baptists like to call themselves fellowshipping people, but that extends basically to a church potluck, and that's about it. And that is not the biblical definition nor the historical definition of the fellowship of the saints, And so I've chosen to employ the word community this morning because it implies and conveys, at least to today's listeners, a degree of long-lasting, intentional, diligent living together, existing together in a regular state. And that's what the Bible talks about when the Bible talks about the fellowship of believers, of brothers and sisters in Christ. We're not talking about occasionally getting together over a meal. And we're not talking about simply sitting together in the same room. We're talking about an existing together in this life, in this world, while we're here, in a very long, intentional, relational, regular state of being. Now I think, if you're anything like me, as we consider the definition of community from the bible as the scriptures expose it to us we'll find that we're lacking but if you're also like me you'll find hope at the end as god calls us to practice true biblical community and embrace it as glorifying to him and good for us so here's my here's going to be my process this morning with that understanding of of community, this lasting engagement, this lasting living together. What I hope to do is take the most majority of our time and define biblical community. And in its definition, I hope you see its purpose and its importance. And then at the end, I want to talk about how we are to get it and then how we are to keep it. So let's begin first with what is biblical community, and I'll give you five points To help define biblical community. And then at the end. I will give you a definition. The first and foremost point is this. Biblical community is meant to glorify God. The fellowship of the saints. The relationships that we have together. As brothers and sisters in Christ. Is first and foremost meant. To exalt and glorify God. After all. God gathers His people together by His Spirit as a sort of trophy of His grace, doesn't He? As a trophy of His power. Because sinners all over the world are saved. And then they're united together and gathered together in churches by the Spirit of God. And they display, when they gather, a picture of God's unending power an unending mercy an unending grace and unending salvation in His Son, Jesus. So our simple gathering together in relationship, actual, sincere, real, authentic relationship, glorifies God because, frankly, many of us would not be united otherwise. And when we come together, we are saying, by our existence, at the very least, that there is a God who saves. And He has chosen us out as His own. And we sit here together In relationship, displaying the fact that He is active in this fallen world, bringing it to redemption and saving the souls of sinners. That's our corporate testimony when we come together. So the first part of the definition needs to be that God is glorified in our fellowship. But I I want to say one more thing real quick before I move on. Not just glorified in a general sense, but glorified specifically in the gathering of His people. And the emphasis here should be His people. Uh, I want to bring this out over and over again this morning, but I need to start out at the beginning here by explaining this. It's not just the grouping of people together in a building called a church, singing Christian songs and hearing to a crazy man speak. It is the people of God who are saved gathered together in His name. That is what brings God glory. So in other words, here's what I'm saying to you. Unless you are born again and saved by Christ, number one, you do not have Christian community. And number two, you are not glorifying God. It is only those who are saved, who come together in relationship together under the banner of Christ, who bring glory to God. Let me highlight a few verses you don't have to turn there. First John chapter 1, verse 3. John says at the beginning of that letter, "...that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ." John writes and he says, My desire is that you have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with God. But to have fellowship with us, you must meet the requirement. What is that requirement? Salvation in Christ. Same letter, chapter 3, verse 23. He says this, This is His commandment, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as He has commanded us. You see, Christians are to love the world, love people in the world, even according to the teaching of our Lord, love our enemies. But there's a special kind of love that's supposed to exist between the people of God, brothers and sisters in Christ. And as we'll look at in a moment, that special kind of love exalts God, sets us apart, and you cannot have that kind of love unless you're first born again by God to have that kind of love. Are you confused yet? Titus chapter. 3 Verse 3 through 8 Paul says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Notice that. That's our condition before Christ. And it's summarized by hating one another, the exact opposite of what is supposed to be the hallmark of Christian community. Verse 4, But, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. And not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This saying is trustworthy and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Notice the transition that takes place in this passage because of the gospel. Before Christ, we're hating one another, but because of Christ, we now unite together to become co-heirs with Christ. So church community is first and foremost to glorify God, but you can only have it and glorify God in it if you are first born again by God, saved by Christ, an actual Christian. And not Christian in name, but Christian in your soul. Number two, Christian community, in its most basic sense, is supernatural unity. And even unity in the midst of diversity. Something we'll explain in more detail in just a moment. But I must interject here. At least it came into my heart and my mind this week to interject here. Unity in the midst of diversity only comes about by the Gospel. Which means, speaking into the situation and current climate of our country in our world, where we have all been, whether we like it or not, thrust into the conversation of racism, the only solution to such problems will always be and only be the gospel. And God's people, first and foremost, display what unity in the midst of diversity looks like, because we are people saved by the gospel. We don't sit around and wait to take our answers from the world. The world should find its only solution and hope in us. So, we'll talk a little bit more about that in just a moment. For this point, let me just highlight the kind of unity that we are to have and exist in. And this is where we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. In verse 12, we're going to do a bit of reading here from 1 Corinthians chapter 12 all the way through chapter 13 and take note here in this familiar text of the kind of unity that we are to have Paul writes and he says for just as the body is one and has many members and all the members of the body though many are one body so it is with Christ If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ, and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles and second prophets and third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all possess gifts of healing, do all speak with tongues, do all interpret, but earnestly desire the higher gifts. And I will show you still a more excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love I am nothing. If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is Now, chapter 13 is often read at the wedding ceremony, right? That's how we take it. It's probably embroidered somewhere in most of our homes or put on some Hallmark card. But it's really injected here in the life of the church and in the relationship of the church. It's a description and definition and picture of love that's to be defined and and exercised in the context of brothers and sisters united together as a body. So what kind of unity are we talking about? Well, the Christian church, especially its local expressions like what you and I exist in now, are to be so unified that we are to resemble a human body. Paul even uses the phrase here, phrase here, no division, in verse 25. We are to be so unified and possess, chapter 13, a supernatural love that transcends this world. And in that way, we're beginning to relate to one another as the Bible calls us to. Unity is one of the most basic features of Christian community. And without this kind of unity, we do not have Christian community. The Bible raises the standard of what it means to be brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, side note, that does not mean that there is no conflict among us. And that does not mean that there is no difficulty among us. Even in unity, there can be conflict and difficulty and hardship. Because we're fallen and we're sinful, right? But real unity says, not an iota, not a thing except the gospel itself, will drive me from fellowship with my brother or my sister. Whatever conflict, whatever disagreement, whatever differing opinion and differing worldview, it will not splinter my unity with my church. Now in today's hyper-individualistic society, that kind of unity, that kind of community seems rather strange. And frankly, invasive, doesn't it? It's not a natural kind of community. In fact, sometimes we read passages like this and we say that's nice and that's pretty, but not realistic, right? Sure, pastor, ideally that's how we want to relate. But you can't expect that in reality. That kind of, that kind of unity is an invasive kind of unity. And I believe that in modern society, especially the society we live in, such invasiveness is often resisted and even flat out rejected. We are individualistic people and we pride ourselves and value our individualism and our self-reliance. In fact, many of us have been raised that way. Take care of your own needs and pick yourself up by your bootstraps and do your own work which aren't bad principles on the surface. But it has furthered a mentality even in God's people today that wouldn't teachings like this weren't necessary in early parts of the church. We'll talk about it in a moment. But today we have to labor. We have to labor on explaining how brothers and sisters in Christ are to relate to each other because we so resist the kind of relational aspect of the church that the Bible Describes, And it's because we have conditioned ourselves to view life in terms of self-autonomy. And in our particular context, where God has blessed us to live in a country where we have great liberties and freedoms, that is, make no mistake by His grace, we suffer even more so from this problem. To belong to a group of people who claims the ability to speak into my life and even at times invade my life sounds to the American eardrum rather oppressive to my rights. And it sounds like it's squelching my liberties and invading my privacy. And we are people who enjoy our privacy. But this unity begins to interfere with some of that. Now, I think as God's design, we are to be free beings. And as free beings, we have the right and even responsibility to make individual decisions and determinations. Scriptures are clear in calling us to exercise wisdom on an individual level. But that doesn't diminish the role that the church plays in our life in terms of unity. And thirdly, as I'm coming to right now, in terms of authority. So the church, first and foremost, is meant to glorify God. Second, its most basic foundation is this human-like, human body-like unity, no division. And thirdly, in defining community, there is a real sense of authority exercised by the church in one's life. The church is supposed to carry a certain kind of weight in our lives a certain kind of rule in our lives. And not only do we resist this as individualistic, self-autonomous people, because we just frankly don't like people telling us what to do, but we also neglect this. And we have reduced, reduced belonging to a church to an optional status. A second tier status. As if being involved in in relation with the people of God is something that we get to say yay or nay to. A church defined by the Scriptures and specifically in a communal sort of way is to hold to some degree, at least, at the very least, a level of accountability and at most an authority to protect us from bad decisions, and bad lifestyles, and sin. That authority in of itself implies something, doesn't it? It implies relationships. And now we start to dig even deeper than the word community. Relationships are necessary for the church. And just based off a human experience... Not nothing super theological or deep here. You can't have relationships with people you're not around. And you don't have relationships with people you're not committed to. And you don't have relationships with people you're not willing to work at. The church has a certain kind of authority, but that authority, in a communal sense, gets exercised in the context of relationships between the members of that church to the extent that the members are actually invested in one another's lives. Actually invested in each other's lives. Which is so contrary to most of the way we practice church life. I could ask you, if you know the color of car of half of the people sitting in this room? And the answer would be no. Much less do you know anything about their lives. Their greatest struggles and their greatest fears. The things that they hold most dear to them as their greatest accomplishments by God's grace. Some of us don't even know the name of the grandchildren of some of our church members. Church community is not just an acquaintance level occasionally being around one another. It's an actual getting together and living life together, investing in one another being with one another, knowing one another. And that is not just a one-way street. That is not just you going to someone and trying to develop a relationship with them and get to know them. That is also you letting someone come to you and develop a relationship with you and get to know you. That also involves letting someone in, which perhaps is the hardest part, right? But church authority and church relationships and investment between uh, members is never anything exercised by force. It is always exercised by invitation. So we have a dual responsibility. To not only seek out relationships with one another, but to, yes, occasionally... Let somebody pry a little too far and dig a little too deep and ask maybe a little too much. I think we see this in the early church. Flip over in Acts. Chapter 2. You know, in this whole ordeal, I haven't turned to Acts 2 very often. And it is one of the most foundational chapters in regards to church community and church ministry and church purpose. And to be honest with you, I planned much of this series, and just this week realized I was following the model in Acts chapter 2. We talk about ministries of priority. They were devoting themselves to the apostles. Apostles teaching. We talk about the ministry of priority of, of, of prayer. And they're devoting themselves to prayer. And here we are talking about the, the priority of church community. And what are they devoting themselves to? The fellowship of each other. But we see that fellowship begin to be fleshed out. So Acts chapter 2, verse 42. They devoted themselves to these things. To the apostles teaching the fellowship, the breaking of bread, the prayers. Verse 43, "...and all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together." Now, certainly much more is implied there than just sitting in the same room under the same roof, right? They're together, and they had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings, and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. That verse doesn't take a whole lot of explanation for you to get the main point and the main thrust of sharing it. Look at the kind of relationships that must exist for these things to be true of the people of God in the early stages of the church. Flip over to chapter 4, Acts chapter 4. Just a page or two to your right, verse 32. We see almost the same passage, certainly the same principles. Verse 32, now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Do you think these believers would have believed us if we could travel back in time, sit in their midst and say, in the year 2020, we're going to have to beg Christians to have relationships with each other. Outstanding to them. Astounding. These believers seem to not just naturally, but even enthusiastically embrace each other in a regular state of living together. Frankly, they had no choice, did they? In the place, in the time that they're gathering together, in the birth of the church, to be Christian meant to be ostracized in society. In fact, to be Christian meant to be persecuted. They were almost anonymous. If they were going to survive, and if they were going to thrive spiritually to the honor and glory of God, they needed each other. And we have begun to think in our society of liberties that it's not also true for us. The same necessity is true for us if we're going to survive in a fallen world, we need each other. And if we're going to thrive to the honor and glory of God, we need each other. The circumstance, the time, the location has changed. The need has not changed. And the solution has not changed. We must be united together around the Gospel if we are going to grow in the faith, walk with love, serve, and honor God in this world that at every turn is resisting that and pushing against that. Whether you know it or not, whether I remember it or not, this is our only safe place. And so these Christians knew that they needed each other. And I believe they warmly and willingly did what Paul describes in Ephesians 5.21 Submitted to one another in relationships. Number four, to define Christian community, it doesn't just carry with it the authority and the relational authority to speak into each other's lives. It also carries with it the acceptance, the universal acceptance of those who belong to God. Now, flip in your Bibles to Ephesians, please, chapter 2 and I'm going to do a bit of explaining while you do flip to Ephesians 2. The Christian community or community in the church is an incredibly, in fact, it is the most exclusive community you could possibly belong to. Because only one type of person gets to be in the community of God. The Christian. Only Christians belong to the fellowship of the saints. It is of all things in the world, most exclusive. And simultaneously, it is, in the world, the most accepting community there is. Which means, it is reserved only for Christians, but if you are a Christian, you are in. You are accepted. We make no other distinctions. The community of God, the fellowship of the saints... Brings together and permits the gathering of all who are in the family and fold of God. And we do that to the display of the gospel. That's different from anything we would find elsewhere. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. Well, verses 1 through 10, and we've looked at this passage before, verses 1 through 10, Paul has laid out the gospel. 1, 2, and 3, you were this way before Christ. Verse 4, but God has intervened and interjected Himself and saved us by grace. And so now, in verse 9 and 10, we're living differently. We're different people. Part of the expression, the very next passage in Ephesians, Paul turns his attention to, the very next resultant fruit of the Gospel is the uniting of believers. And believers who are as different from one another as possible. And so He came and He preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through Him we both, Jew and Gentile, have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Here's what Paul's getting at. And in fact, we can keep going through the rest of Ephesians. The same points keep being brought out. Paul is saying, let's take the two most distinct groups on the planet at the time. Jew and Gentile. Vastly different in their views of God. Vastly different in their understandings. Vastly different in their heritage and their culture and their practices. Vastly different in their pagan upbringing versus their ritualistic upbringing. And then he says, because of Christ, there is no longer two but one. And you've heard me say this before, and I will say it again, because again, to say the same thing to you is no trouble to me and safe for you, that Paul's solution to the two different groups here is not two different churches... Or two different services. Or segregation of any sort. The solution for Paul is to elevate Christ. In the midst of their differences. To hold up the real bronze serpent. To hold up the real shining light of Jesus. And say, look to there. And as you do, as the hymn says. The things of this world will grow strangely dim. And these temporary differences begin to melt away. Because Christ through the cross has brought us together and killed the hostility between us. Now that means for you and I, that anyone who bears the name of brother or sister in Christ, we have a certain kind of unity and fellowship with Him. Regardless, Of whatever worldly, temporal, societal differences may exist between us. Regardless of national differences, ethnic differences, upbringing differences, financial differences, social differences. Those things don't matter anymore. According to Ephesians chapter 2, the thing that binds us, which is Christ, transcends all of our differences. There's not a difference. There's not a separating factor between us now that conquers the binding agent of Jesus. Mark Dever and Jamie Dunlop wrote a great book which the staff and I partially read before COVID hit. It's called Compelling Community. And in it, they talk about gospel-revealing community versus gospel plus community. And gospel plus community is where we say that we believe in the gospel, we're united confessionally, but then it's manufactured community where we just basically click together based on similarities. All the guys go over here, all the girls go over there, all the older people go over there, all the younger people go over here, college age, single adult. We begin to segregate and segregate and segregate and divide and divide and divide. And their argument in that book, which I happen to agree with, is that the church ought to be practicing gospel-revealing community that is not manufactured based on similarities, but it's a certain kind of community which we have to look and say there is no other way that these people would be together in relationship with a divine kind of love if it weren't for Christ. There's no other way that that guy and that guy would spend time together in the week. And be in each other's homes. And pray together. And share a meal together. If it's not for some supernatural intervention. There is nothing else in common between the two of them. Or that gal and that gal. Who may have even at one point in time been at odds with each other. And yet now. They spend time together. And they read together and they're regularly seen together and they talk about their children together and they talk about their homes together and they talk about their jobs together and they share these deep dark things with each other and they share these deep secrets with each other there could be nothing else to explain that but supernatural blessing and supernatural intervention and that church is the kind of relationship by which we reveal the glories of the gospel of christ where we live together every day of the week, not just on Sundays and Wednesdays, but we live together in such a way that we testify to the saving grace of God. You realize the way that we treat each other, interact with each other, talk about each other, think about each other, commit to each other, either credits or discredits the message of the gospel to a watching world. It does. And one of the great stains of this past week Lifeway Christian Resources, which is the Southern Baptist Convention publishing arm, sued its former CEO and president. Until there were a ton of calls to say, You are staining the witness of the gospel. Now, we can bring life way up all we want, but the truth is we do that in much more subtle ways all the time, don't we? Neglecting each other. Not checking up on each other. Not praying for each other. Talking poorly about each other in the community. Talking poorly about each other to our spouse. Talking poorly about each other in front of our kids. Talking poorly about each other in our homes. Whatever it may be, we undermine each other in the exact same ways, maybe more subtly, and we often forget the way we relate to one another either credits or discredits the message that we proclaim. Well, Ephesians 2 tells us the way that we relate together is to be, is, is to be a picture, a displaying proclamation that we are a people who have been changed from the inside out. That we confess our sins before a holy God and have come to Christ in faith trusting and believing God's promise that those who call upon the name of the Jesus the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved and that has changed us and so now we're connected in ways that are otherwise inexplicable. One of the great joys that I have been boasting about by I think the permission of the Lord is our church's Titus 2 ministry right now. Now, Not everybody can practice that. I understand. We have 29 individuals who are meeting every week to talk about their faith. 29 people in different life stages from different backgrounds who otherwise might not know each other. And what explains that? What explains the reasoning For such things, the gospel is the only explanation. And those are just the 29 relationships we know about. I know there are many of you who have those sorts of relationships. You've connected here and you've connected over the gospel and you've been united and you feel as though, I've heard the testimony from a number of you, your hearts are united in such a way here to the people in this church that you feel as if they are closer than your own biological family. And you share things with them and you meet with them more often than you meet with your own mom or your own dad or your own children. And what explains that except for Ephesians 2, gospel unity? And church, that's what makes the power of our relationships in this community gorgeous, glorifying to God. I have to speed up. John chapter 13, verse 35 also shares the same principle, is Jesus speaking, and He says, the world will know that you are My disciples by what? The love that you have for one another. The love. The way that you love each other. And again, that's much more than just a feeling. That's much more than just a positive outlook towards another person. We're talking the investment kind of love. All right, let's skip several things and get to Other things. Number five, Christian community also enables and encourages spiritual growth. So we're still trying to define what Christian community is. We may never get it defined. But at this point, we're saying it also enables and encourages spiritual growth. And so on one hand, I have to say this, Christian community isn't just for the sake of displaying the beauty of the gospel and the glory of God. It is that first and foremost, but it is also for your good. And to neglect it is to do so to your harm. Remember earlier I said, we thrive, we can only thrive in relationship with each other. You might exist and continue on like the loner on the island. But you won't thrive without your brothers and sisters. It is a gracious gift of God to belong to the church. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. Well, I'm not going to have you flip there, but I'll flip there very quickly. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 and 25. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Again, the language, meet together, is much more than just sitting in the same room. We are a people encouraging one another, con- considering how to stir up one another to love and good works, and especially as this world draws to a close and wickedness seems to abound and increase. Other passages that carry this exact same principle—I'm gonna rattle them off to you real quick: First Thessalonians chapter five verse eleven, Hebrews three thirteen, James chapter five, First Peter chapter four, Colossians three, Romans fifteen—all share the exact same thing. It is in the context of Christian fellowship where you thrive spiritually. Like fertilizer on a weed. Growing and growing even when you try to make it stop. So too is the Christian who lives in this kind of church community. Let me define it now. Let me bring it all together. Christian community or fellowship, if you have the right understanding of the word, glorifies God as a picture of the gospel by which God's people are supernaturally unified and invest in each other's lives to the encouragement and aid of one another in godliness. It glorifies God as a picture of the gospel by which we're supernaturally bound, encouraging and aiding one another in godliness. Who doesn't want that? Ultimately. We all, from time to time, like to disconnect and be alone. But isolation is one of the greatest forms of torture. It's because we're not meant to be alone. We need each other. It would be best for me to save the rest for another day. Because I would like to continue talking about church membership. I would like to talk about how we get this kind of community, which is by elevating Jesus. I'll just give you the answer. How do you get this kind of church community? It's holding up Jesus constantly. And in our individual conversations, Because 1 John chapter 4, the love we have for one another is directly connected to the love that we have from Christ. To the point that John says, if you don't love your brother in in Christ, then you don't have the love of God in you. It's a very compelling passage. I'd like to talk about how we get, I mean how we keep Christian community. Which is by serving each other with our spiritual gifts and sacrificing for each other. but I'll save that for another time. Let me just close with some practical thoughts for you just very quickly, if I may. Let me call you to realize the priority of real Christian community versus pseudo-Christian community. Or real Christian community Versus the fake appearance of community. Contemplate such things. Consider what it means to be committed to each other. What does it take for me to go across the room today and meet somebody I don't know? And to begin to get to know them on a level other than just their name. What do I need to do to overcome that? How much prayer should I be spending time in to make that possible? We should also resist whatever may harm our fellowship. Bitterness, resentment, anger. If we think there's a slight chance we've hurt the feelings of a brother or sister, we ought to be quick to apologize, not let it work itself out. It's better to discover you didn't hurt somebody's feelings than to have hurt somebody's feelings and let it fester. We ought to consider inviting each other into our lives, which isn't natural, must be developed, but it's totally worth it. We must humble ourselves before each other. Philippians chapter 2, verse 4, Paul talks about considering others more often than you consider yourselves. Considering others better than yourselves. Putting the needs of others above your own needs. We ought to consider the importance of church membership, which we will in a later sermon. And finally, we ought to examine our own hearts and ask, do we really love other Christians specifically the other Christians in this church beyond just word? Do we love in word and in deed? And if not, has the love of Christ touched our hearts? You can only love your brothers and sisters in Christ if you yourself are also in Christ. And as John puts it in 1 John chapter 4, which we didn't read today, but I promise we will read later. As he puts it, If you have tasted of the love of God, you will love your brothers and sisters in Christ. It is a test of the affirmation of your salvation. If you're in Christ, do you love other Christians? Maybe your lack of loving your brothers and sisters in Christ or committing to them or fellowshipping with them is beyond just a struggle, but a revelation that you're not saved yourself And if so, I have good news for you. What's the good news, church? Today you can be saved. Christ has saved you. or Christ has died so that you can be saved. You can call on Christ and say today that Christ has saved you and be liberated from the isolation that all those who are dead live in. You can find real family with God. If you are a Christian this morning, as I pray here in a moment, would you also pray? Ask God to help you care for your brothers and sisters just like He cares for you. And I trust that if we all seek God on this, He will begin to change the very culture of our church so that we're not just a people who interact once or twice a week but we find ourselves calling and texting and emailing and meeting all throughout the week to the encouragement of each other's spiritual good. Would you please pray with me now? Great and glorious Father, we call You Father because we are Your your children. And we have been brought by the blood of Christ into Your family. You have adopted us. You have made us sons and daughters through Jesus And as children of Yours, we should be welcoming of our brothers and sisters in You. Help us to be. Not just for the sake of social interaction, yes, that, Lord, but also and mostly that we might glorify You as we are a picture of what You've done on the inside. Would You bless us with peace and harmony would You bless us with the kind of un- uh, unity that we see in the, the human body? The kind of love that Your, your Bible describes and defines. O oh Lord, bind us together in Christ so that through the way we interact and relate to one another, You might be exalted and even made known in our midst and to a world that's around us. For Your glory and our good, we pray, Jesus. And in Your name we pray, Amen.